What's good, everybody? This episode of the podcast is sponsored by DistroKid. They are the go-to for digital music distribution and the easiest way for musicians to get your music onto Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, TikTok, YouTube, and all the places you need your music to be. They offer unlimited uploads, and artists keep 100% of their earnings in-store 10 to 20 times faster than any other distributor fastest payouts they help out with automatic splits cover song clearance and all kinds of other amazing tools and templates to help you get the most visibility for your releases i dig this company and really appreciate their business model that offers more features than any other distributor at the most affordable price possible for solo musicians bands studio artists DJs, and any other creators that are producing music in their home, and they also offer label services as well. They've got three different tiers to offer creators that start as low as $22.99 a year. That's just $1.92 per month, and even their top tier breaks down to only $7.50 per month. And the best part about DistroKid sponsoring the podcast is that they are offering Dan Cable Presents listeners 30% off your first year of membership, making their already affordable services even cheaper for you check out the link in the episode notes i also put it in my instagram bio in the link tree click that link and it'll give you 30 percent off your first year of service super stoked to have distro kids sponsoring the podcast and can't thank them enough for their longtime support of this thing let's start the episode What is happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Dan Cable Presents Podcast. Thank you for tuning into the program once again. If this is your first time listening, thanks for checking out the show. You can find fresh episodes coming at you every Tuesday. And if you want to help support this thing in a free way, you can do so by clicking subscribe on iTunes, clicking write a review, giving the podcast five stars if you feel like it is deserving of so, and that will help propel this thing into the tops of those iTunes charts, which will give it more visibility on the national and international levels, helping strangers find the podcast in just a great way to contribute to the growth and sustainability of this thing. Appreciate the hell out of all the folks that have already taken the time to do so. If you're not listening on Apple, just hit like follow subscribe wherever you are listening from tell a friend about the podcast tell a friend about the monthly playlists that have been dropping every first in the month you can find those on apple and spotify pretty spread out genre wise and uh, just kind of a snapshot of what i'm listening to throughout the month some things that are making it in to my dj sets and whatnot so you can uh, find those links in the episode notes super stoked to share this conversation with andre middleton who is the executive director for portland oregon nonprofit organization called friends and noise i've known about friends of noise since around the time it started back in 2016 friends of noise is supporting creative youth in portland through all ages concerts workshops and experience navigating the music scene built on the values of collectivism and restorative justice fostering a healthy ecosystem for all ages to thrive by 
providing youth-focused programs, teaching industry skills, developing resources, mentorship, and professional development. So it was great to finally jump on the mics with Andre. This is another one of those chats that has been long overdue, and Andre and I have been going back and forth this past summer about trying to find time to chat. So I'm glad that we finally made it happen. Andre is so great in this conversation about explaining the ins and outs of Friends of Noise. So I'm not going to do too much talking up top. We're just going to get right into this thing. If you're new to the cast, I'm usually from week to week in conversation with artists of all genres and music industry folks. Usually music is featured throughout the conversation. And I had asked Andre about who some of his favorite Portland bands are right now. And he mentioned this band Mauve, who Jordan Krinsky from How Strange It Is actually also brought up a couple of episodes ago. So to get the episode going and to close out the episode, you are going to hear from Portland-based band Mauve, all the links for Friends of Noise, Mauve, Andre Middleton, Myself will be in the episode notes and to kick off episode 382 with Andre Middleton from Friends of Noise. We are going to play one of my favorite tracks from Mob from their most recent record. This track is called Drive Through. Let's do the damn thing. to it then man i'm excited to uh to chat with you on the mics i remember meeting you a very long time ago probably close to eight to ten years ago when i moved here at a crave dog happy hour and uh i don't even know how deep into friends of noise things were at that point but i remember that was the first time i heard the name friends of noise and and met you there and uh so what year do you think that was about I think I started this podcast in 2016 and I was already doing it, but it was pretty early on. So it was probably 2016, 2017 at the latest. We just started Friends of Noise in 2016. Okay. Um, I used to work at the Regional Arts and Culture Council in their community engagement department. And we had did a town hall for the music industry called The Happening um, at Holocene. And um, we talked about all things music and 
really tried to engage the music community. So they would like apply for grants and do stuff through Rack. And the biggest topic that people wanted to talk about was the lack of all ages spaces. Mm. So myself, just as a private individual and a group of people from arts education, music, um, there are people from X-Ray FM, people from Holocene, people from CD Baby, people from My Voice Music, people from Rock Camp for Girls. People just, they're just were musicians, were just really down to just talk about this and really chew on it and figure out what could we do to do something sustainable. I mean, up until that point, there had been like, you know, at least 10 all-age music spaces for the last 10, 15 years that had just come and gone. You yeah. know, the warehouse, Meow Meow, a variety of places. I think most of those places were already closed by the already time I got Already closed by here. then, right. Yeah. And the last place that was kind of holding on in 2014 was a spot called Backspace. And Backspace was right on the bus mall, right around the corner from Ground Control. And they got shut down through to some, I don't know if it was shady, but it was like, People like I think the city came after them for something to do with like retrofitting their like water system or fire hydrant system, something like that. But whatever reason, it just wasn't cost effective anymore and they closed it down. And that's why it was such a big topic at our thing, because people were lamenting, whoa, everything's gone and there's no place for that. So when we started, it was just a bunch of people just kicking it and talking and trying to figure out what was up and what could we do. And it was my idea to talk about it being a nonprofit because since I was working at Rack, I had seen all these people apply for grants and I knew about the grant system and I knew how people would raise money by getting donations. So instead of depending on a door, instead of depending on selling kombucha or tea or coffee, we get a lot of our money from grants and donations. Okay. And that's been really sustainable for the past couple of years. Cause that's the big struggle with the all ages venues i would assume right is that there's not you can't make money off the the alcohol you can't sales you can't you can't and to be real it's hard to make money off the door because when you are trying to make shows affordable right you can't be charging teenagers 15 20 30 a ticket right they ain't got that kind of money yeah so we try and keep our ticket prices between five and 15 you know um and that's affordable but that five dollars doesn't stretch to cover all the expenses whether it's paying the bands paying the sound engineers paying rent right electricity yada 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 yeah. yada yada so that's why it really helps to be a nonprofit where we got grants we get people donating money left and right um to keep our doors open so for people that don't know what is friends of noise andre um friends of noise is an all ages music nonprofit that seeks to amplify the voices of young people through performing arts um we are a nonprofit that is kind of founded on the notion of restorative justice and equity and how are we creating spaces for marginalized young people black brown indigenous bipoc kids um, members of our lgbtq plus community um, trans bi just young people who have not been welcomed into mainstream music ecosystem how are we creating spaces for them where they can be seen and they can see other people like them um, we really are thrilled that almost all of our shows are multi-generational. We've got young people performing on the same stage as adults. Um, economic um, development has been a core part of what we try and do from day one. So we pay musicians and artists for every show. We host open mics so young people can start trying out new stuff and see how they work in front of an audience. Um, we have developed a 
jobs program or a jobs training program where we are teaching teenagers to be sound engineers and to do event production. Um, last year, we were able to provide services to about close to 50 different nonprofit and community-based organizations and running sound for their events, whether it be block parties, we ran the family stage up at Pickathon. Yeah, that's that's been really cool to see. I've... I've uh I've been involved with Pickathon since like 2017. I think it's great that they have that kid stage, but it's it's really cool to see these last couple of years, see Friends of Noise kind of take over that kid stage and not just have, you know, adults performing children music, but having younger bands. And then also, like you're saying, you're having, you know, you sound engineers there running sound and, and the stage production and things like that, I think is just so cool to see that in action. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And it's all been just a tapestry of how are we uplifting youth voices? You know, it's been great to be able to book bands like Teeth or Serial or Arena. It's been a lot of fun giving him a, a shot at that platform so that people realize you don't have to be 21 and older in order to perform. Yeah. You could be 16, 17, 18 and have some great experiences, have some great music inside you. Just looking for a way to get it out. Yeah. Or just seeing, uh, I know Friends of Noise has been running sound for the a Beat Happening monthly events, which is is cool that Jonas is very invested in making sure that those are all ages events. And I think it's just so important to get to be around it. You know, when you're interested, I would like, when I was a kid, there was, there was nothing of the sorts to be able to come to this space and not only learn how to, you know, maybe get to perform, but also get to understand how to run a mixing board and like to even know that, you know, that option was there to, to learn something without having to go to some intense, you know, sound engineering school or something like that. Those access points, for real, for real. Um, there, I can't tell you how many adults have said to me once they've learned about Friends of Noise, said, wow, I wish that was around when I was a teenager. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a parent. I have been a teacher. I've been a special ed teacher. And, you know, I really believe that if you're willing to give people the tools and the accommodations that they need, they can have an impact and contribute now. And, you know, it didn't seem fair to us that, young people were told to wait outdoors, outside, until they're over 21 to get access to professional stages, yeah. um, to be expected to perform professionally. Why wait till you're that old enough? It's like we're drinking. You know, I'm not saying that young people need to drink, yeah. but there's a big difference between America's relationship with alcohol than it is in Europe. You know, when European kids are taught at an early age, we're not talking five or 10, but we're, hey, there's, you know, no one throws them into a bar at 21 yeah. and expects them to be able to function. Why are we expecting young people to do the same thing in the music, music in the music ecosystem that has been designed to be exploitative, that has right. been designed to extract resources from them? So we're just trying to give them age appropriate lessons and steps so that by the time they are 21 and over, they'd have four or five years of experience and no one is going to take advantage of them because said, no, I know what an MOU is. I know what my W9 is. I know what an invoice is. I know what a set time is. I know what a sound check is. I know what a draw is. Yeah. I know what a door split is. I don't, we don't want them having to have those conversations when they're 25 or 30. We want them to have those conversations now. For sure. And then they're not going to get taken advantage of those in those spaces either of just like getting a shitty door deal or just being like disrespected because they think that they don't know, doesn't know right. things. And it's just like, no, I've, I've already been in these spaces. I've had the opportunities to, what was your, uh, were you just heavily into music as a kid growing up? 
I know you've been out in Portland like 30 years. You're from New York. I grew up loving music. Um, you know, growing up in New York, you know, always had a radio on. You know, my I remember the first I remember the first time I heard Rapper's Delight on the radio. I remember hearing Prince on the radio. But then I remember hearing Dixie's Midnight Runners on the radio. I remember hearing um, Def Leppard. And so really grew up invested in music. Um, I was of the early MTV generation. So I was one of the first young people in my early teens to saw, you know, MTV come on the air and be able to see music that way. So um, when I moved to Portland, as a black man, I was ready for the grunge era, you know, and I fell in love with Nirvana. Um, I went to a lot of clubs here in Portland, like the city, like La Luna, like Satyricon, like X-Ray to see who was playing live. We yeah. do road trips up to Seattle, to Crocodile, to the off ramp, to the Paramount. So yeah, I just really, really loved music. Um, and, you know, eventually I became a bouncer at this club called the Luna. So I got paid to see music. So really, really loved it. And that's the reason why I really am pushing for an all ages venue one day here in Portland that is permanent, that has an economic model that is sustainable because young people need to feel that collective energy of seeing live music together. Absolutely. man. Where they've been listening to the songs on their MP3s or on the computers and they can come see that song and sing along live. Um, it need not just be for the big touring acts like the Kendrick Lamars or Beyonce's. We need to have that same kind of love for local acts that are just performing between here and Seattle and hitting college towns in between. Those bands need to be supported the same way the big boys are. And I think that having a space where 13 year olds and 14 year olds and 15 year olds can see them because those are the prime consumers of music. That's what we're looking to do. Yeah. I mean, I remember being eight years old in Southern California. There was, uh, this very cool punk rock club in, in the suburb that I grew up in. And we, I went to a battle of the bands cause uh, a friend of a friend was playing in it and just to see kids that were only two or three years older than me playing music was such a, a game changer to see that in action, to see that that was like something that you could do and you didn't have to like be some rock star or something to, to take these stages is, yeah, I think yeah. that's super important. No, super important. And I appreciate that perspective because, you know, kids can be shy Kids have a lot of self-doubt, especially if they don't see other people doing it like them, whether they're black, whether they're gay, whether they're female. And I love the fact that not just because they're friends of noise, but because of School of Rock, because of Ethos Music, because of My Voice Music, because of the Rosebuds, there is a growing ecosystem of young people who have been playing with each other and in front of each other for the last three years. I think the pandemic had a big impact on that because with all the big clubs that were closed down, house shows really came to the fore and people just doing generator shows under bridges and in parks. And I think that that really lit a spark for young people to say, Hey, how are we doing this for ourselves? I think there's a real strong DIY movement in Portland. And I'm just hoping that the established venues are going to be prepared to accept these musicians and not say, sorry, you're not 21 yet. So your music career has to end now that everybody's back indoors. So we're really hoping that we can open a spot. Um, We really appreciate the work that Honey Latte has been doing. Um, Really appreciate the work that a lot of galleries have been willing to open up their spaces. So we'll see what happens in the the next couple of years to make sure that this energy continues. Yeah. What do you think the, I mean, you're obviously 
in these spaces and, and trying to figure out the best way to, to bring an all ages venue to Portland. Like what, what is the key to making something like that sustainable and successful without obviously like removing an alcohol element to it or being able to like keep that in there, I guess in, in some sort of uh So I just want to make sure what you're saying is that as opposed to including an alcohol element so that yeah. we're getting revenue from alcohol. So I think that there needs to be government funding. I'll be, I'll be straight up with you. I think that whether it's coming from the Oregon Cultural Trust or from the Regional Arts and Culture Council or from the city arts manager, I think that because there isn't the straight commercial facet or commercial aspect of selling alcohol, because let's be real, every adult club in town, their highest or their biggest product that is consumed is not the live music, it's the alcohol. Right. So most, most clubs are are pur- purveyors of selling alcohol and they're using the music as a draw. We want to flip that script. We want the music to be the draw and then the goodies and snacks we sell are just a bonus. We want the primary economic engine to be the music and us to value the musician first. So whether that is selling merch, whether that is having fair ticket prices, whether it is creating a, a audience pool that says, you know, we value the music. So instead of me spending $50 on booze at a night, cause I bought four or five drinks at $10 each, yeah. I rather spend $20, $30 on the, on the music so that each band is getting a fair cut. And then maybe I'm spending five, 10, $15 on snacks. Right. That's what we're aiming for. I do think that that might require during this kind of transition bridge period for there to be a subsidy from our local government because they realize that a town like Portland, it's a creative town, whether it's White and Kennedy, whether it's Nike, whether it's Adidas, there are a lot of companies in Portland that need creative people to come here. And that's why I think Portland was such a big part of the grunge era. And that's why I think that Portland, whether it's the great outdoors, it's a creative town. Creative people love coming here. They love meeting other creative people and spending up nights working together and planning and dreaming and scheming. That needs to have a a foundation. And I think that an all age venue, like what we hope to do could be that foundation. So then people are meeting each other and they're not doing it because there was a drunken night and they forgot what they did the next day, but they're doing it in a place that is really a cauldron and a catalyst for creativity. Yeah, for sure. I think it's, uh, especially as I get older and spend more time in the the music industry or in the music scene, you know, I'm just like more and more willing to, to put up more money for a ticket too. to, especially if I know that that money is going to the artist or going to the sound engineer and making sure that everybody is not just paid, but like paid well. Yeah. Cause it can just be, it can be so hard and so draining to like build something sustainable when you know, you're not, even making enough to get by like even as a sound engineer in these spaces or you know and that's one reason why we're hoping to introduce this at a younger age because in all fairness most young people don't have the same level of expenses as adults do yeah and because of that 
Um, one would say, well, they don't need to earn as much. Okay, I might give you that. But that doesn't stop us from teaching them about the economics. So for example, we are developing a booking committee that are gonna start booking our shows. And we're having real conversations. So what's the door cut? How are we paying the bands? Who, you know, where are all the expenses of putting on a show? And what's gonna be an equitable division of that money that comes in? What should the ticket price be? Is it 10? Is it 15? Um, you know, you can't forget about the credit card cut, you know, because they're going to take their cut. <laughs> yeah. from, you know, PayPal's going to get their cut. So it's really rewarding to have these that level of conversation with teenagers. So like I said, by the time they're in their 20s and 30s, this is old news to them. Yeah. And they have an understanding of how that $1 gets divided amongst the house the, you know, the, the staff, the musicians, the sound crew. So they realize that, Hey, for us all to be able to earn a living from this, it just can't be the house that's taking 50, 60, 70% of the, of the door right. and everything else is splitting it the way. When we book shows, we, it's a 60, 40 split where 60 is going to the artists and everything. And we kept the 40 and our 40 is going to promotion. It's going to pay the staff. It's paying the door people. It's doing all that kind of stuff. So we're hoping that that is a step in the right direction. And we don't have it perfect yet. You yeah. know, we're still, we're still learning and figuring out some shows are bigger than others, you know? So we try and guarantee $50 a head for every musician that plays with this as a guarantee. So even if only three people walk in the door, every member of that band's going to get 50 bucks. And we're hoping to grow from there. For sure. You're, it sounds like you're, you're teaching these kids how to fish. Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, so what was it like launching this thing back in 2016, 2017, getting it off the ground? Um, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, you know what it's like to collaborate here in Portland. You know, when you get, when you get around like-minded individuals and you're all working towards the same goal, that's my happy place. So, you know, the original board members, um, like, um, Aaron Hall, um, Rebecca, um, Miller, um, Bim Ditson, um, a bunch of folks. It was great to build space with them. And we started off just by doing like one show every three months. And, you know, it was at the end of the first year that I was like, yo, we, we got to fish or we got to go big or go home. How do we do this? This we're going to grow. And then it became a monthly show at a local art gallery called S1. And it was in that year that I wrote this like five page manifesto to the board. And they're like, yo, that all sounds good, but we don't think we can do that because we got other lives and responsibilities. And that's when I said, okay, make me the executive director. I'll become a grant writer. I'll become our tech lead. And I started buying gear and putting it in my garage. I was lucky I had a house, lucky I had a garage. So I was able to put all the gear in the garage and I was able to, you know, get t-shirts made and, so, and next thing you know, my garage is full and we're doing shows on a monthly basis. Um, I got lucky that I met a teacher at Grant High School named Lynn Yarney, who's now on our board. And she connected me with a art student named Chloe Barker, who used to be on our board, but now they're going to school in California. And Chloe started making all of our posters and flyers. Little did we know that she was going to put that in her portfolio so that when she was applying to college, she had a library of work that she had done that helped her get into college. So that's been a, another really great facet of how we started and where we are now. So, um, yeah, we started doing monthly shows. Yeah. Um, then we started doing, you know, monthly shows on Friday, Saturday, so two monthly shows. Then the pandemic hit. Um, so that obviously things slowed down quite a bit there. 
really just a dark time for music, obviously, as you can remember. And um, what I ended up doing as a means of coping, not just on the political and spiritual side, but also just to keep me connected to community, I built with the help of a guy named David Gluck and um, Owen um, was to build a portable sound system that we called um, the um, MPOW. And it was a portable, a mobile PA system or mobile PA unit. And I took that in my Honda Element to BLM rallies and social justice rallies all over the Portland metro area for a good solid year and a half. And I think that helped Friends of Noise grow because people knew who we were. They saw us all over town. So now we are doing a lot of fee-for-service, for-profit events because so many people saw how much we had invested in the community. So now we are doing events for Miller Foundation. We're doing events at the Portland Art Museum. We're doing events for community um, for community events all over town, block parties, Montevilla Jazz Festival, all over things. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Did you get a, a pretty big response from the jump, like even pre- pandemic from the youth of like seeing this opportunity or you said it was Chloe who who was uh making all the posters and stuff was it as simple as you put up a a friends of noise flyer in in a high school or a a junior high and and kids start kind of showing up no not really it was slow I think that young people are justifiably guarded when adults are doing something on their behalf And I think that, um, it takes a while to earn their trust and to get buy-in and to have other people vouching for you and saying, yeah, no, friends of noise is legit. They're for real. Um, you know, I remember in 2013, 14 and 15, um, there was a rash of Portland had its own me too movement in the music scene. And there are a couple of clubs, ones that don't exist anymore, so I can say the name, like the Analog yep. Cafe oh, in particular. Figured that's where, what you were talking about. Yeah, where people, you know, knew, and there was word on the street that that place isn't safe. So, you know, and you have house scenes where some people are getting drunk, some people are doing drugs, and sometimes people's judgment isn't where it could be. And sadly, it is the marginalized, and it are people who are not dominant culture, who often bear the brunt of people's bad choices. So how did we... We come on the scene and try to constantly, consistently, loudly push our values out there in a way that people can say, oh, I can trust. So I feel great where we are now, but it, but it was real labor and it was needed labor. I would be doubtful of any scene that would just accept a new player in the yeah. scene without putting them through their paces and without testing them and without seeing them and without hearing them on a daily consistent basis. So, yeah. Yeah. What do you uh, think was key in building that trust? Just showing up, you know, showing up consistently and uh, making sure that we were doing our darndest to not just book punk bands, not just book boy bands, but to book bands across the range. We're booking hip hop, we're booking queer, we're booking female, male, you know, making sure that we're putting out a, um, not a product, but making sure they were giving equal access to a broad spectrum of our community. Another thing that happened when the pandemic started was that we had just launched in a um, kind of like a side hustle called Youth Power PDX. And that was basically like a TED talk for teens where we would make a space for teenagers to talk about their issues, whether it's the environment, 
um, you know, adult, you know, adulting music, what have you. And when shows stopped, we happened to get a show on X-Ray FM. Um, we were streaming on YouTube and we just started bringing young people together to speak their piece and perform. And I think that is something that's still out there because, you know, once it's out in the world, it's, it stays out there digitally. I think that was a big part of young people saying, oh, wow, these people are for real yeah. because they're giving so many of our, our peers just a platform to speak and a platform to sing what they want to sing. Um, another thing is that we are super, super liberal and open to all skill levels when it comes to self-expression. We do not have this high bar that says, oh no, you have to have this kind of draw. Oh no, you've got to be this kind of quality. Our open mics are, 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 are a lot of our shows. Some of them are the first time anyone's ever performed and their voice might crack, they might, this might happen, and their audience, and we still give them a lot of love because we want them to do, we want them to do it again. Yeah. We want them to, to show up again. And so by being so open-minded, by being so generous, by having so much grace, I think that too is something that led to a lot of young people buying into what we're about. Yeah. At what point were you able to advance from not just doing the monthly shows and doing that stuff, but like expanding into doing workshops and starting to teach kids how to, you know, be sound engineers or, or all of this stuff you're talking about as far as just like a, a run of show and understanding those operations. So real talk, we had always imagined workshops being a core part of what we did. Um, sadly the pandemic put a stop to that cause people weren't coming together. So, um, Back in 2018, 2019, we used to host a workshop before every one of our concerts, and it'd be a free workshop. So, hey, come to the workshop, stay for the concert. That was a little unwieldy. It was a long day for some. I mean, if you got there at three o'clock and you didn't leave till 10, that's a long day. So right now, um, I'd say for the last year, year and a half, we've actually been partnering with other organizations to bring our folks to their workshops, like the Bodecker Foundation, great organization in Northwest Portland. We've done with them at least two or three make your own merch workshops. We taught kids about the basics of screen printing, the basics of making buttons, the basics of making stickers. So young people can understand, Hey, here's how you're going to monetize your music, make merch. Um, we've partnered with young audiences now called arts for learning where they run a workshop called live set and it's, and live stands for live sound engineering for teens. And we've been a strong partnership for the last three years, making that happen. Um, we're hoping to get our own building at some point and we're hoping that we can start hosting our own workshops, but in the, in, but in light of us not having our own space of us being an emerging organization, we've sought to build community by partnering with other people and bringing our audience to them. Um, and it's been working out really well ever since. Yeah. That's amazing. How do you feel like your maybe your initial ideas around what friends of noise could be maybe had to shift as, as you got deeper into it to, to make it sustainable or if that makes it any does, sense. It does. Um, I remember, and Bim Ditson was a huge advocate for this from day one, the stated goal was to open up a venue. Just eat. They don't care if we don't care if it's a storefront, just let's create a space where young people can come and make a lot of noise and, you know, feel relatively positive about that. What we didn't anticipate was the cost <laughs> and um, all the hoops and the administration and the regulations. Yeah. So I like to think that reality has forced us to, you know, come to grips with, hey, here's what we want to do versus what we can do. I also like to think that 
for the past you know, five years, we've tried to be more responsive to the needs of our community. So while we may have had a vision, what's the vision of the young people that play with us? You know, what do they need? So I really love the fact that, you know, we've been able to develop a crew of youth sound engineers because they said we want to learn how to do sound and we are not getting access to doing that at the Doug Fur or at the, you know, Keller Auditorium. They don't, they're not going to give us a time of day because we're under 18 and they don't think we know anything or we're not in a union, yada, yada, yada. So a lot of our growth, a lot of our pivoting, a lot of our just being nimble has been, we're relatively small. Um, We have a board of directors that trust us, that believes in us. Um, We are growing up in a town that isn't as big as New York City or as big as LA or as big as Chicago where, you know, there aren't big dogs in the scene or going to say, we're going to do that, not you. Um, And, you know, we've got TriMet that allows young people to get from point A to point B relatively easily. I think those are a lot of reasons. I think those are a lot of the facets that have enabled us to be flexible, to be nimble and to really be able to listen to what the young people need. Yeah. And what would you say like the biggest obstacles are in kind of transforming or, or molding the culture, whether it's like the funding element of things or just even making sure that, you know, the, the word continues to, to get spread about friends and noise. Like I know that there's a huge focus of, you know, equity of access is, is a big thing. And like just even creating that element of things. Um, I'll say second to financial resources, because that's obviously money makes the world go around and yeah. always on the lookout. I do think access, what you start to point to, is a real challenge. And I say that because we inter- there's a venue up in Seattle called the Vera Project. Yeah. And we got to interview those founders when we started Friends of Noise just to get the lay of the land. And we asked them a similar question. What would you do, knowing what you know now, what might you have done differently when you started the Vera Project 20 years ago? So the Vera Project started, you know, in the 1990s. And they told us we would have put the Vera Project not in the Seattle Center, which is, you know, at the bottom of, you know, which is in a great neighborhood. We would have put it down by Columbia City on the south side of Seattle. We would have made it more accessible to brown and to black and brown kids because it's easier for wealthy upper middle class white kids to go slum in a barred powder town because they know that the police, if the police show up, they're going to believe them versus the local people. So therefore it's on the converse. It is harder and less inviting for black and brown kids and for poor kids to go into the nice part of town because they know that everybody's watching them. What are you doing here? They don't belong here, blah, blah, blah. So that's something that we are always thinking about. How can we embed ourselves in the part of town, not where it's, we're just reaching out to the most marginalized, but where there's less infrastructure. You know, How many clubs are in downtown Portland? Do they need another music venue downtown? Um, but how many clubs are in, are in Kenton? How many clubs right. are in St. John's? How many clubs are in Montevilla? How many clubs are in Gateway? How many clubs are in Lentz? So we're really looking for spaces that are outside of the downtown core so we can make it as easy as possible for the kids in that community to walk across our threshold, whether it's taking a bus, whether it's biking, whether it's walking. Um, A lot of these kids don't have multiple car households where both mom and dad and baby brother have a car. 
So that's something, so that's a challenge for us. Say, how do we make sure that we are accessible as possible? That's one reason why we've embraced not having a space so we can go and set up shop anywhere. All of our gear is portable. We've got portable sure. stage, portable amps, portable lights. So we can do shows in Kenton, in St. John's, in Gresham, in Rockwood. So that's something that we've tried to say, let's meet these people where they are halfway so that they can meet us and get to know us as opposed to making them take a bus an hour and a half to get from 172nd and Gleason all the way downtown. So that's been something we've been working on. Yeah. What about the the financial aspects of things? Is it been has it gotten easier to figure out the the grant system over time? Like, what do you attribute to the the success of you know getting the funding for this? Um, real talk, um, it's been. I want to say that we've been lucky. Um, I think um, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I used to work at the Regional Arts and Culture Council, and in my in my capacity there, I got to read a lot of grants. Yeah. And I got to see um, how people wrote grants and what the language they used. So that was like a master's class in grant writing. And I've been able to apply that. So we've gotten our, we've gotten a fair number of grants and the way the grant ecosystem works, you got to start small and then people notice you and all the funders in town, they all know each other. So Meyer knows Miller. Miller knows the Collin Foundation. The Oregon Community Foundation knows them. And they all look at each other and they all say, oh, you're funding Friends of Noise? Well, why are they funding Friends of Noise? Maybe we should be funding Friends of Noise. And that's how we kind of get on people's radar. So I feel pretty blessed that um, I had that training on the job training when I did. I'll be real with you. Um, Something that we're still working on is getting more individual donations. So for example, we're going to be in the Willamette We Give Guide, which is an annual giving um, platform that the Willamette Week newspaper puts out every year. And we're always hoping to meet new individual donors because the difference between a grant and an individual donation is that a grant is usually tied to a specific event. Right. They're called usually project grants and those grants are restricted. You can only use that money on what they gave it to you for. So if I say I need, you know, $50,000 to hire a new employee, if they gave me 50, I can only spend that 50 on that new employee. Whereas individual donating grants, those are unrestricted. I can use that for whatever I need. So if I need to buy equipment, if I have an emergency I need to cover, I can do that with that. So we're always on the lookout for individual donors to come to our website, www.friendsofnoise.org, come to a show, follow us on Instagram, so you can see the impact of what we're doing in a way where you say, you know, I'd be willing to give them 20 bucks a month. I'd be willing to give them $50. I'd be willing to maybe, you know, put them in my will, you know, I'd be willing to donate a car on their behalf because you see what we're doing and that money just goes such a long way. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And then you don't have to necessarily do all that. I don't know that, that pre-work on like, where exactly is this money going to go? And you just kind of had those resources. I think that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That must be, must be nice when, when those personal donations come through it is Uh, so oh love the personal donors love love those donors but but got to give love to the foundations as well you know the foundations i mean i haven't had a individual donor give me fifty thousand dollars so i would love that um but it's the foundations (laughs) that do and i appreciate their support i appreciate what they're seeing what we do and i know that our young people appreciate it as well 
as far as you know you were talking about access points earlier as far as you know friends and noise being mobile and being able to you know go into these different communities has the like an online presence helped with that at all like where you're able to kind of you know run a workshop over the internet or you know something along those lines to give people access in in that way um I haven't embraced Zooming and online stuff for workshops and classes and day-to-day interaction. Um, I just value the live experience too much. Yeah. Um, You know, I saw a lot of artists do, you know, streaming concerts during the pandemic and just, we never found an audience for that. And I think because our audience, while they're online, they're not online for a half hour, hour at a time. You know, they're on Instagram looking at reels that take up 30 seconds. Right. So um, we do have a lot of content that we're hoping to put out over the next fall and spring. But we're, we're repackaging that for smaller, you know, 15 minutes and then maybe, you know, one or two minute reels or, yeah. or the like. So, um, no, we really value in-person interaction. We really value people being able to talk to each other and look in the eye and read body language. And like I said, live music is such an important part of my growing up and my existence. Yeah. I, I don't want to undercut that if I don't have to. You talked earlier about you know, this thing kind of being pretty cross generational and a lot of the friends and noise events I see, you'll end up sometimes pulling maybe a heavy hitter in the, in the Portland music scene. So I'm curious how important that participation has been from maybe some of the larger acts in Portland to, you know, offer their time and and be involved in this. Huge, 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 huge. Um, I want to give a big shout out to music Portland um, they've been a great organization and they have been steering a lot of people our way. Um, you know, whether it's cool nuts, um, whether it is, um, the rap community has been so huge, whether it's been versatile, um, you know, there's been a lot of rockers like, um, you know, skull divers, um, to so many bands that have said, yo, we love what you're doing. We're going to play with you this fall. We're going to have about four or five benefit shows over the fall. And we've got bands like the reptilians. Um, we've got glacier veins. Um, we've got, um, shadow graphs, you know, we've got growing pains who started off as new, yeah. you know, so it's been really great to see adult bands, see the value and then playing with emerging teen bands. And on one level, I think that they are surprised and shocked at how good these young bands are. But on the flip side, the band, the youth bands love seeing how it's done. Right. And when you reach that level of professionalism, when you reach that level of just, you've been practicing it so long, it's, you, you, you can't get it wrong. I, I love seeing that interaction of energy where both has something to teach and share with the other. Yeah. So, um, so appreciate that. And like I said, Music Portland is tiered a lot of people our way. And we're looking forward to when we get our own space to have bigger bands being able to play our space because it's not under a bridge. <laughs> you know, a, yeah. lot, a lot of bands, when they get to a certain age, you know, I don't want to do that crowded basement show anymore. I did that when I was in my twenties. I want to play a real room. Yeah. And you know, the real rooms are still, you know, the Doug Fur, one to bar room, even bunk bar is, you know, that's a legit space. So we're hoping that once we can get our own legit, legit space where the sound is dialed in, where, you know, where we've, where we've mixed for the room and not just for the band, I look forward to having even 
more established groups. Like I'd love to get Red Fang, (laughs) you know, um, I'd love to, you know, get the Boom Bat Project. You know, there are some really some great bands that are maybe touring through the Portland Metro area that maybe would be skipping and going to Seattle to play Vera Project. If I could start getting those bands to perform with us, that'd be great. Yeah. That's gotta be exciting as, you know, one of those, one of those kids and you get to share a bill with, with bands that like are headlining Mississippi studios and these, these venues that they aspire to one day play when they are old enough to be there and don't have to just stand outside after their set. Yeah. <laughs> Has that kind of been the same getting, getting the involvement of, uh, you know, adult sound engineers, like someone like, uh, Matt Larimer, mm-hmm. I know is, you know, involved in friends of noise and could not have done what we've done for the last four years without folks like Matt and David Barth and Anya and Molly Pettit. Um, the live set, the, the, the adult mentors at live set have been instrumental in continuing education, but I'm going to be real with you. We now have some alumni who've been doing this for a while that they are stepping into the roles now. Um, Noah Bunker, Fox Newey. Fox is great. Um, we, they are now stepping into that role where, they are now teaching the next generation. That's, so that's very cool. Occasionally we may ha- need to bring in another Matt or bring in a David or bring in an Evan on occasion. Yeah. But we're really trying to give our young people a shot because that's how you even learn more. You know, the, when you have to help a young person problem solve, that's when you it really, Oh, that's how we do that. So we're really looking forward to having our alumni step into that role of adult leadership. Yeah. That's just exciting that it's existed long enough for that cycle to even no doubt happen at this point no doubt how much has your day-to-day role changed in this since you started or does it feel relatively the same um it's a mix i mean obviously i have a lot more admin now you know whether it's filing taxes or updating certificates of compliance so that stuff we didn't think about back then you know, I still am carrying gear to our shows and helping run <laughs> lights and run XLR cables. We did a show in collaboration with Honey Latte on, I think it was Wednesday, um, at the Exchange Ballroom. Um, there was a great band called Boy Scott um, and uh, Nova, Nova Ono, and we got a local band called Ivy to open up for them. And I was the first one there and the last one to leave because I brought all the gear and I had to help get it all set up and had to break it all down. So I love that I still get to be hands-on. Um, but at the same time, I love that we are slowly developing a crew of people that can, I don't need to be at every show. Yeah. So let me put it like that. There's obviously just like an insane amount of passion for what you do. It seems just even talking to you about this stuff. Where, where does that fire come from? You know, what's keeping you going with all of this? Um, you know, on one level I might say, cause I was a late bloomer. Um, you know, um, I want to give props to my mom. You know, she was a hustler and, you know, I definitely got to see her blossom and flower from the results of her labor. You know, she made sure that I grew up in a not just racially diverse, but culturally diverse community. I grew up around Jews and Gentiles. I went to private schools and public schools. I played clarinet. I played soccer. I went to summer camps, sleepaway camps. I went to music camp one year, and then I go to a pro labor camp the next. So I think my mom did a really good job of giving me a broad um, exposure to life. And, um, you know, I look forward to, in my own way, 
passing that on to the young people I work with. Um, you know, I don't want to sound as cryptic as that I'm an energy vampire and I'm <laughs> feeding off the energy of the young people around me, but it, there's something about hearing the latest music that kids are listening to on a daily basis. Yeah, man. And I wish more parents, cause I'm a parent myself. I wish more parents could just get a slice of that w- reality. Just get a, mm-hmm. just be comfortable in being maybe in uncomfortable. Just listen to young people's music. Yeah. It just, it, it'll give you so much more insight. It gives you so much more foresight into what's coming. And I feel lucky that I get a steady diet of what young people are listening to, um, on a daily basis. Yeah, I've found that doing this podcast, even the last 10 years or so, it, uh, it often puts me in spaces with, with younger people, whether it's five years younger than me or, or 10 years or at this point, 20 years <laughs> as I get older sometimes. But um, do you feel like your involvement in all this really helps you maybe not fall into the trap of being one of these people that are saying kids these days or not understanding, like you're saying, you, you get to hear the music that they're playing and, or the music that they're interested in and things like that. you feel like it's just like such a great bridge to, to stay connected and, and not feel. I, I, I want, know. I want to say 98% yes and 2% no. <laughs> and the 98% yes is because I think being in constant contact and communication helps keep that lines of dialogue open. And I think that even with their own parents and friends and family members, uncles, it's when that communication breaks down that we start to start missing each other in understanding and comprehension. Yeah. Um, You know, I think about people that I've known that are now full on MAGA enthusiasts. You know, they weren't 20 years ago, but now they are. And we're like, whoa, how did that happen? Well, you haven't talked to them in 20 years and you haven't seen what they've been going through in that 20 year period. So I think that that times the lack of communication is what creates that those kids these days. Um, on the same time though, I have to acknowledge that I've got 56 years of experience in comparison to 19 and those 19 year olds don't have the same trials and tribulations that I've had and they've got different ones now. So I appreciate that we are in different places in our lives and they are just beginning their journey. And I don't remember when I remember when I was 19, 20 years old, I was listening to some 56 year old tell me (laughs) how I was about to start my journey. Yeah. (laughs) So I got to give props and give respect to that and acknowledging that we're just in very different places in our lives. Yeah. And hopefully by having a vulnerable, open dialogue, we can meet somewhere in the middle. Does that mean that I'm expecting them to act like a 30 year old <laughs> or, or they expecting me to act like a 25 year old and that, and, and we're just trying to figure out where, where we are in that conversation. Yeah. At the very least, it's very cool that it seems like you're, you know, giving them the tools or opportunities to, to learn things that I didn't learn until, you know, I was in my late twenties or 30 years old or, you know, how to operate in these spaces. And, and I'll be real. I, I hope that one of the most important things that we're, that they're learning and we're sharing is how to be a compassionate, caring, functioning adult in a community environment. That is all about you. 
It's not, it's not all about them, but it's about us. And, um, you know, America has been built on a certain individual ruggedness and how, you know, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you can do this. And, you know, F that other guy, I got to get mine. And I hope that Friends of Noise is part of an ecosystem of educators, of community builders and people that care that are trying to show that there can be a different way. Um, you know, there's this um, Mad Chill, this DJ named Mad Chill. Yeah, absolutely shared with me the, the notion of collaboration over competition. And even though I think I've been living that my entire life, it's been really great to hear it put into words like that. If we can get more young people to come from that perspective, I think that the future could be brighter than yeah, what we were at right now. Rise together, you know? Yeah. yeah I, I think that's been just even a, a big part of, yeah. Wanting to share things through this podcast of just, you know, it's not like, I don't know. It just wouldn't be as fun without everybody involved and to like get to see everybody kind of come up and like, if, if this person over here is doing well, it's good for everyone yeah. and involved in that community. And yeah, what's yeah. been the, what's the most rewarding part of this job for you? Um, I get, I get asked this question a lot and it's super easy to say the most rewarding part of this job for me is at the end of a show when the room is empty and we're packing everything up and I can start to see the young people around me look at each other with this look of, we did that. We did that. And it's a night where the police didn't show up. Nobody got hurt. Nothing bad happened. And they look around and say, yeah, we pulled this off. We booked the bands and we set up the sound and nothing fell over. That is the most rewarding thing because that kind of self-actualization that kind of them being able to visualize their success is what, what propels them to keep doing it. And, um, so yeah, that's my most rewarding moment is seeing them look at each other and acknowledge their success. Where do you see the most growth from where you started this thing, whether it's within the organization of friends of noise or, or even with your yourself? Um, I'm going to say a little of both, um, for, from, for the organization, I love that there is a network of young people that know each other. Um, there are at least maybe 20 teenagers right now who have played multiple Friends of Noise shows, who have run sound at multiple Friends of Noise shows, and they are starting to collaborate in their own ways. There's this guy named Noah Pen Penwell. He works at a DB Nation, and he started a podcast, and he's booking musicians that he's worked with. You know, He's inviting bands that he's seeing because he's running sound for them. Yo, come back to my studio. Let's put you, let's put you on record. Yeah. Um, I'm seeing bands say, hey, we'd like to have that person mix for us at this gig over here. Um, you know, we're hoping to bring a crew of young people out to tree for it next year if we can. So the Let's goal, go. right. So the goal, so that's one thing I really, the, the best growth I think has been in seeing this network of, you know, young men, young women, gay, straight, black, start to see each other as not different genres or different scenes, but part of a big scene that is growing from my own personal journey within friends of noise. Friends of Noise is paying my mortgage. It's providing me with money to pay my Obamacare. You know, it's it's provided me with a level of purpose that I didn't have when I was 30 years old. I'm not working for someone else. I'm investing in myself. And that I've been able to develop a, a community of people, including yourself, that see and believe in what I'm doing enough to say, hey, we're going to give you time on our platform. We're going to volunteer. We're going to give you money. And that money is in that 
energy, time, money is directly impacting my ability to live a relatively successful, happy life. You know, I don't have a vacation home at the beach, um, but I don't need a vacation home at the beach. If I needed it, I'm sure I'd be doing a job that would, could get me yeah. that. So personal growth wise, I'm really happy that Friends of Noise has grown to a place where we have employees where one employee just bought a house and I had to fill out a form for proof of income. I never, I believe, I never imagined that this small nonprofit would help facilitate someone putting a roof over their head. Um, this person had a baby a year ago. Who'd have thought that the money that I'm paying someone is feeding their child? That's amazing. So that's amazing. And I, I can only hope and pray that as we grow, there are going to be more teenagers who are becoming adults who are going to be part of that network and part of growing. You know, best case scenario. Not only do we get our own building, which we're working on, so you know, please keep an eye out for that in the future. I'm hoping that we have chapters in Seattle, in Eugene, in Grants Pass, in Boise. I yeah. hope that Friends of Noise can become a nationwide movement that is something analogous to the Scouts. I'd love if we can get the Grammy Association to support us. I'd love it if we can figure out you know, a nationwide job program where we are developing the next era of sound engineers so it's not just a bunch of guys from the Haight-Ashbury days. It's not just a bunch of guys with long ponytails, but it is more <laughs> women. It is more black and brown people who are mixing who are mixing, who are mastering, who are learning the means of production, not just the consumption. So I hope that that's a, I hope that's where we get to continue growing. Yeah, man. I'm excited to see where it goes. Um, yeah, what you're doing and the whole friends of noise organization. It's, it's super inspiring. And I feel like this conversation is long overdue, but I'm glad that we're doing it now. Appreciate you. And, uh, appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me. This will drop in the next couple of weeks. Is there anything you want to mention or anything that we haven't touched upon that you feel like is important for people to know? I've kind of touched upon it, but let me reiterate. Um, Friends of Noise is going to be one of almost 200 nonprofits that you can find in the Willamette Week Give Guide. And um, it, there are going to be some great incentives like trips and tickets and all types of stuff. But it is this one-stop shopping for donating to a lot of really, really important nonprofits, including Friends of Noise, that are doing the work to help heal our city. Um, our city is... It's not as bad as the people on Fox News say it is. We're doing okay. It's not as bad as any of the news. <laughs> is it? But, but there's always room for growth. And real talk, the pandemic scarred us in a real way. It was traumatic on a lot of people. I know a lot of people that passed away. I know a lot of people that know someone that passed away. Um, for two years, I did this reading of the names project where I read the names of people that were one degree separated from me that passed away. And that list grew to over 300 people. So there are 300 people that passed in the last two years, or at least previous two years, that I knew by one degree separation. So the trauma is real, the impact is real, the pain is real. And nonprofits like Friends of Noise, like Camp Elso, like Brown Girl Rise, like My Voice Music, are doing the work to help our young people heal and climb out of that, uh, come out of that dark space. So um, please find us in the Alignment We Give Guide. Um, we're going to have a variety of concerts over um, the next two months, starting in um, late October through December. And um, we just look forward to your seeing, checking us out. You can visit our website at www.friendsofnoise.org and uh, see what we're all about. Awesome, man. I'll put all the links in the episode notes so people can keep up. They can send you those donations and just at least follow what is happening with Friends of Noise. 
And Andre, we end every episode of the podcast with the guest saying the tagline for the show, which is it's a program and it means absolutely nothing. It's just the way that my grandfather always says program when he's talking about the news program. Okay. And so if we could get the Andre Middleton, it's a program. We can properly sail this thing out. It's a program. He nailed it, everybody. That's Andre Middleton from Friends of Noise. Thank you so much for hanging, talking with me. Dan, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And uh, that's the Jelly Jams. And we will catch you on the flip side, Portland or wherever you are listening from. Cool, man. Peace. want to give a big shout out to distro kid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast and for their longtime support of this thing don't forget to find that discount link in the episode notes or in my instagram bio 30 percent off your first year membership with distro kid helping you get your music in all the places it needs to be stay up stay tuned